Welcome to Pastor Potluck. I'm Court Green. And I'm Peter Constantin. It's a good day here in Canton. It is freezing cold and there is ice on the ground, so there's not much else to do. But I'm very glad to be speaking with Peter and with y'all. There's a lot going on, and so I thought we'd come together and talk about it, which is what we do. Some of the things that are going on, we had a crazy day in the markets yesterday, and Peter and I were just talking about that. Uh, a few people decided to play a little game with GameStop uh, stocks, and they ran up the price, and market fell 600 points. And the day it's back 500 points up, it's, it's just a roller coaster. And that got us talking about the state of issues in our economy today. For instance, those who have and who are really focused on the markets have been riding this elevator just up and up and up and up and up and sometimes it'll take hits and they're fine with that they can withstand it all the while it's almost a tale of two nations where you have people for those of you who are not in Haywood County it's quite rural there's a big mill here and there's two population centers and other than that it's, it's fairly rural and so we see people struggling and these aren't people who I mean, in some sense, all of us are in a way connected to the market, but these aren't people who can just laugh about the funny thing that happened on the stock market, how some people ran up a price just because they could. These are people who are very much affected by it and hurt by it. And in that conversation, we talked about some of those struggles. Uh, we have a lot of drug addiction. We have suicide rates that are fairly high, higher than I can remember any time in my life, other than and I'm older than Peter, so he probably doesn't remember this, but when Kurt Cobain died and he had a lot of people who thought, okay, we should copy him, which is terrible. But anyway, um, and so there are real struggles. You have agricultural-based um, businesses that are struggling. You have all kinds of brick-and-mortar uh, operations that are struggling because of the pandemic or because of other things, and they're feeling this, and it's hurting them. And so we started talking about that and other issues that affect our times. And so if you want to weigh in, Peter, just jump on in. Well, yeah, I've been pretty confused about the fact that in the midst of a, a global pandemic where so many people are suffering, the stock market seems to keep going up and up and up. I mean, of course, it, it dropped right away back in, what is it, March, yeah. April, May, June of last year. Uh, but then it recovered really fast. And, you know, a lot of people are optimistic about that. But I was sort of wondering, is this really telling the whole story? And especially with so many jobs being lost and so many businesses uh, that are having to shut down, you know, we're, look at restaurants. I mean, Emily and I were just in Asheville the other day driving around be like, oh, that closed. Oh, that closed. Oh, that. You know, how is it possible that the stock exchange in New York isn't reflecting this kind of uh, life altering reality here in what I'll call the real market, as opposed to the stock market, the real market, which is people's jobs and people's lives and small businesses. Um, somebody, some article I was reading the other day kind of explained it in this way. Um, I'm not sure that this totally explains it, but uh, as far as the unemployment rate goes, it said if the 
if the economy loses three people's jobs who totaled $90,000 in, in income. So three people making $30,000 a year. If those three people lose their jobs, but one CEO gets a $100,000 bonus for bringing the company through a good, through a difficult year, well, that completely washes out the loss of those three jobs as far as the economy is concerned, as far as um, that, that total income. And so we have, in, and that's a simplification, but in the marketplace, there's sort of a, uh, there's a lack of concern for the, the effect on, on the lives of people who are not making, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year or millions of dollars of year, a year, just because of the way that those kind of results get tallied. Um, and so then it leads me to the question of like, how do we know what's really going on? How do we know, like, and how do we measure the realities of the suffering that's going on in the world when this indicator of our market, which we thought was supposed to tell us, you know, are things going well or not, is saying, yeah, everything's going well, but we know and see with our own eyes that that's not the case. So a couple of points on that. The first thing is to remember that other than old money, the rich get rich for a reason. So a lot of these people who are, who the market really is an indicator of how they are doing the stock market, they are wealthy because they've learned to, and they've hedged against certain things. So whether the market goes up or the market goes down, they go up. Mm. And so I don't think we can use the stock market as an indication of how things are going. We've done that for way too long. Um, but because of that, because people are so insulated from the hurt that it can bear, it, it's no longer applicable. It's like, um, so we got a thermometer and for like a, like a, one of those gift exchange games and we kept it in the house and set it up in the house like it's one of those that you stake out in your yard and it's like tells you the wind and all this other stuff like 15 bucks i don't know anyway so we we, we got one of those and we got stuck with one of those in the in the gift exchange game and so we put it together in the house the heated house and then we took it outside and we put it in the ground and we were like oh dang this thing doesn't work well it did work fine but it had been in our insulated house. So it, at least until it was out there and exposed to the elements long enough, it did not tell the correct temperature. And that, that's what we've done with this thing where we use the stock market to tell us how we're doing. Uh, so many people are insulated. They're, they're not affected. It's like having a thermometer inside the house. It doesn't tell you the temperature outside. Yeah. And so the question is, how do we take that metaphorical thermometer outside and gauge how people are doing and you can't use a stock market that's governed by people who are insulated to tell that anymore the yeah. answer to that other than just getting out there with them and asking them is I, I don't know but the suffering is real and the suffering is apparently going to keep continue one of the things you brought up when we were talking about this earlier is that people are now counting on being bailed out now that's two groups of people that's businesses 
And that is also, and churches, by the way, and that is also um, people hoping for stimulus. And they sit there and they watch the news and they think, well, when are they going to sign this bill into law and give and send my check? Mm-hmm. And I don't know that a society can continue that. A government can't continue that way uh, in perpetuity. And I don't think that society should continue that way because beyond economic ramifications, that has societal social implications that are just horribly damaging. Mm -hmm. Uh, If I want to teach my dog to do something, and I'm not saying that people are animals, but risk or not risk reward, but punishment and reward training, Pavlovian stuff, this, this goes on in people too. But if I want to teach my dog to do something, I'm going to associate reward with that thing. And so if we want to teach people to be dependent, then we'll continue to um, make people dependent. But a better solution is to set people free of dependency. Go ahead. Yeah, well, and and that's, I think that's, that's true. But uh, for, for those of us who are, who are surprised and pretty glad to get a stimulus check in the, in the mail or in direct deposit back last year in May, and then again in December, if you, if you got, I haven't got my second one yet, but um, we got to remember that uh, banks and, and, and corporations have been getting stimulus checks and much bigger ones for a lot longer. Right. And that's part of what we're seeing in the market today is that the the banks are like, well, there's no risk because if we fail, the government will bail us out. Uh, And so you have this like and I love what you said about this insulation. Right. Um, That that there's there's this group. And if I can bring it towards the Bible a little bit, we have a similar setup going on in first century Palestine where in Israel, in, the, uh, in Jerusalem, in the, in the hierarchy of the temple, uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, the people in Herod's court, the high priests, um, they're insulated to a certain extent by, uh, by their power, by their closeness, their proximity to power. And they don't quite get it, what's going on out in rural areas like Nazareth of Galilee. And so that comes up in the story of Nathaniel, which we talk, which uh, was in the scripture appointed from Mark for, I think, two weeks ago, the calling of, uh, of Nathaniel. But that was in the, the Gospel of John, actually. Uh, but uh, I think what we see here in Mark is an invitation to go and see, to also borrow from John, what's going on out in the world. And you said, we may not be able to see it except for getting involved in these people's lives. That's, I think, exactly what it is. And that may not seem um, like super appealing, but I think that's the work that we're called to as Christians is we're, we're not gonna gauge how, how we're doing on the market. We can't. We have to look to Christ, and Christ is to be found in Nazareth of Galilee. Well, I'm going to ask you to go on about Nazareth of Galilee, so if I forget, remind me to come back there, 
But I do have to say one thing first because I didn't finish uh, one of the points I was trying to make and I left it where I sound like a jerk. So I wasn't saying that we should not give stimulus because then we'll train people to be takers, which is where it seemed like I was going with that. Where I was going to go was until we get out and see who needs help and how they need help. And then instead of just giving stimulus to everyone, including millionaires and billionaires, we need we need to be able to be getting it where it's needed to get people back on their feet so that we can then free up the world to produce again and and set people free to not be trained to just wait on the next check. Um, I, I do not think that we shouldn't be helping. We should. Okay. I had to get that out because I started to sound like a real, real jerk there. No, um, and that's, that's important court. And I think as uh, church leaders, we need to be thinking about what is the stimulus quote unquote that we offer because there's an economic stimulus that the government is offering, right? But that is, we know that that is not the only thing that people need, that, that an extra $1,200 or an extra 600, an extra 1400, that's not gonna keep people from, uh, from isolation, loneliness, uh, suicide, depression, drug addiction. There's, a, there's work that the church needs to be doing and that work, I believe, is called community formation. It's called welcoming people in, loving them unconditionally, showing the love of Christ, and, and not just welcoming in, but going out, right? And going out and making ourselves vulnerable in a way so that we have an opportunity to build real community and stability amongst our neighbors. And... On that note, I'm going to take you back to where you were already headed, and that is to talk about first century, first century Palestine. And so thinking about how churches have this, churches today have this, not really leaning, but propensity, if we, if we don't guard against it, to be insulated and only care about what's going on in our walls. And, and all organizations have this, this bent, if you will. In first century Palestine, you had, and Peter was just talking about this, you had the Sadducees that were kind of, they, they orbited the temple complex and the, the religion uh, that was temple-based, and they, they also orbited Rome, and they were re- very, very insulated from the problems that the common person, I almost said man, you don't want to do that, but the common person faced. And in their insulation, they couldn't see the problems that were going on. They couldn't see the unrest. They knew about it because you, I mean, that was kind of part of their job to keep the, keep the peasants quiet so that Rome didn't have to deal with it. And as long as Rome didn't have to deal with it, they would be rewarded handsomely. So they kept themselves insulated. They kept Rome insulated. They didn't know about all the problems, although they were aware there were, there were some. Then you have Galilee. Now, if you haven't been to Israel, Galilee is one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen in my life. If you're from Haywood County, go to Lake Logan, make it about three times bigger, and that's what it looks like. Um, and it's, it's, it's great. But in, in, in the eyes of the Sadducees and the people that live in Jerusalem, in Judea, Galilee was like the redneck area. This is, this is the place where the, 
the hillbillies and the farmers were, and they looked down upon them. They were insulated from their problems and they looked down on them. So have we given that description, where were you going with that reference to Galilee? Well, I think for those of us who are concerned with following Jesus, uh, we have to see, we have to remember that Jesus is God. And what Jesus does tells us about who God is and how God is. And God chooses in Jesus Christ to go to Galilee, mm -hmm. to show up in Nazareth of Galilee, in this place that's beyond Samaria, where we already know uh, what the what the uh, religious elite in Jerusalem think about Samaria. They think they worship wrong, whatever. Galilee's on the far side of Samaria from Jerusalem. You know, it's out there and they don't even pay it any mind, right? So that's, so the, the gospel of Mark, which I encourage, every, it's the shortest gospel. I encourage everyone this year, since we're focusing on it, to just sit down and read through the whole thing with an open mind. Because I think Mark is up to something. And I want to give you just a little sample of that today, Court. I want uh, to, you know, ask you what, you what you think Mark is up to. And to do that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump to the end of Mark, right? We know that Jesus shows up in Nazareth of Galilee at the beginning of Mark's gospel. No birth narrative. It's just he comes from Nazareth of Galilee and John baptizes him in the Jordan. And then he goes right back to Nazareth of Galilee. And then we follow Jesus' story. Jesus picks up his disciples along the way. He starts to perform miracles. He starts to gather a following. He ends up in Jerusalem, right? And all of a sudden, things start to go poorly for him. And we have to decide, well, do we keep following him? Eventually, as the story goes, we know he's crucified. He's arrested. He's, he's uh, crucified. And... Unlike the other Gospels, Mark does not show us the resurrected Jesus, at least the original ending, which, uh, which ends with verse 8 of chapter 16. But let me just read you uh, the last few verses of this original ending of Mark. It says, this is chapter 16, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they could go and anoint Jesus' dead body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they came to the tomb. They were saying to each other, who is going to roll the stone away from the entrance for us? When they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, and it was a very large stone. Going into the tomb, they saw a young man in a white robe seated on the right side, and they were startled. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He isn't here. Look, here's the place where they laid him. Go tell his disciples, especially Peter, that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there, just as he told you. I'm just going to end there the gospel of Mark. There's one more verse, which I'll save for later, but uh, this verse seven, I think is critical. 
the young man says to these women, go and tell the disciples, especially Peter, that he is going ahead of you into Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. What a peculiar way for the gospel of Mark to end. All of this doubt, all of this fear, all of this uh, uncertainty about whether or not they chose the right person to follow. He's crucified. He's di he died. He was buried. And then when they go to the tomb, all they get is this young man telling him, go back to Galilee. You'll see him there. And so I want to ask you, Court, what do you think Mark is up to when he starts and ends the story in Galilee? I don't know 100%, but we're going to get there, I think, uh, between us. We can work it out, or maybe not. But what I love about Mark, Peter mentioned earlier that Mark is one of the shortest Gospels, but also, in my opinion, the best Gospel. And one of the reasons that I think it is the best gospel is because that its brevity leaves room for mystery and in that mystery we don't get all the tidy little answers that for instance john gives us or matthew and this was done to fulfill the prophecy that blah 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 instead we're left to wrestle with what certain things mean and so when you get pericopes like this one when you get verses like these where there's so much unknown and an answer is not given to you first we have to fight this temptation that obviously earlier christians had to go ahead and fill in answers and and we have to instead embrace the fact that we may not get to know so if you read your bibles you'll probably have a footnote one verse after peter stopped reading which he said we get back to that uh, that verse that we've left out which is one of the best verses in mark and then it, the footnote will say, you know, some sources in here or something to that effect. And then they'll add some more. And that's where you find some answers that, in my opinion, they redacted into it. But and it's not just my opinion. It's a pretty popular opinion. Anyway, what I love about Mark is that it kind of leaves you hanging. And so the way it leaves you hanging here is to say, go to Galilee and you'll find him there. What you don't know is, did they find him there? Did he show up? Did he explain anything? What happened when they went to Galilee, if they indeed went to Galilee? I think part of the reason getting to the actual answer to your question, in my opinion, is they wanted the disciples to return to where they found him to find him again. They, being the narrator and I suppose God, wanted the disciples to have to do something to go back, to make the trip, to put forth the effort to find Jesus as Jesus had found them mm. in Galilee back in the day. And so I, I think it's, it's a call to return to the original goal when we set out because a lot of stuff has happened just taking a macro view which you've already done to some extent they travel with him it was win after win after win after win jesus could do no wrong peter makes a messianic uh, revelation and suddenly things start going haywire 
was loss after loss after loss. I think the turning point was Jesus tries to heal a blind man and says, hey, you can see now, right? Well, I see objects. I see people, I guess, but they look like trees. Jesus has to try again. The earlier Jesus never had to try again, and suddenly things get harder for him. Um, and then, so they've been on this roller coaster of just kind of like we were talking about the markets, how people just ride it up to the top and then suddenly it falls. Well, they had ridden Jesus' coattails and looked like he could never be stopped, and then suddenly he was crucified. What do they do with that? Mm-hmm. And so there's an invitation given for them to return to where they fell in love with this movement and and became dedicated followers so that hopefully, in my opinion, hopefully they would rediscover, recapture that moment where they were became dedicated to following this movement movement so that they could then carry it forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's I mean that's kind of where I, I go with this too. It's this it's this mystery, like you said. It's this invitation to return and to look carefully, even an invitation for those of us who are just reading the scripture to start over and read the gospel again. We're, we're part of that invitation, I think. We get to the end of Mark and we're wondering, what did we miss something? And it says, go back to Galilee. Go back to where this all started and try to figure it out. And to me, when we do that, we actually, like you, like you were indicating, we are actually following in Christ's footsteps because God chooses to, to go to Galilee first. And people didn't understand that. You know, people didn't understand how this Messiah could be from a rural place. Speaking of rural places... We live in one. We live in in Haywood County. And, you know, we've been perplexed about uh, the way this economy is seemingly doing really well based on the market. But we know the reality of life here in rural places, which is probably something that um, is common throughout the United States right now. And I was doing some research uh, about the 1929 crash. And uh, apparently what was going on is there was a lot of people who had moved from rural areas into urban centers for industrial type jobs. But in the rural areas um, in 1929, the prices of agricultural commodities like wheat plummeted because there was an oversupply. And you think, oh, well, these farmers are doing really well. Like there's an oversupply. Um, But what that meant is that the, the price plummeted. Nobody was buying enough of this. And so the, the income of these farmers plummeted as well. And with that went, most of rural economies in the United States. Well, I don't know if anyone's caught this article, but apparently shipping containers, uh, shipping vessels that usually are carrying agricultural commodities from the US to China and other places around the world, uh, last year just decided to stop taking them 
and just took empty containers instead because of what they were going to pick up in China and bring back was just way more profitable. So the this is happening again in a certain in a certain way where we've got a problem in rural places. We've got a problem with agriculture and with that go rural economies. And it's not okay for us to just say history repeats itself because that absolves us humans of making better choices. <laughs> the gospel of Mark, even after we watch Jesus arrested, crucified, buried, it's asking us to make better choices by sending us back to Galilee to look harder, to look more carefully, to follow more closely. Real quick, I want to explain something in greater detail, just in case you are listening to us and you don't care at all about economics. If something is priced so low that it costs you more to produce it than you can sell it, then you don't do anything. I mean, it, it, it hurts you to, to take that product to market. So when he talks about either in 1929, the prices of agricultural products dropping, um, you may have seen newsreels when you were in elementary school or middle school of rivers turning white with milk being dumped into them uh, because dairy farmers had to keep milking, but they couldn't sell anything. Uh, and when he talked about in modern times, empty shipping containers, it was not worth filling them because it would cost you more to fill it than it would to sell the product that you would fill with which you would fill it. Okay. Now getting back to your point, you just made uh, being invited to go back and, and read again by sending the disciples to Galilee, which is where it started. Are we going back to the beginning now? Yeah, let's go back. Let's go. All right. So we've been invited by the, the, person or being in white to go back to the beginning. And so we're going to go back to Galilee. Are we, are we going to come back to the last version mark or not before we do that? Uh, yeah, let's do it afterwards. Okay. So going back to the beginning, this is after Jesus is baptized by John Mark 1, 21 through 28 says, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once, his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Thus ends the reading. Thanks, Court. So my first thought here, um, I'm just looking at this verse 28, right then, the news about him spread throughout the entire region of Galilee. It was in Galilee 
I mean, it was in a synagogue, but it was in Galilee where people first started to hear this teaching and think, oh my gosh, this is a teaching for us. This is a teaching that has authority in our eyes, which is different from what they were hearing from these scribes. I imagine these scribes with their connections to, you know, Jerusalem and to the power structures of the day. Um, oftentimes we're just referencing previous writings, previous, previous theories, pre previous thoughts, previous theologies, uh, without really speaking to the real issues going on in the world around them. Uh, and, and here comes Jesus speaking with authority. To me, this is the difference between studying theology and thinking and acting theologically. He, Jesus is engaged in active work. He is healing. He is casting out demons. Uh, and that's something that's immediately recognizable. To me, that says something about God. And I think we can take heart in that. But I, I want to give you a chance to speak, Court, on what this passage says to you about the person that Jesus is and what his teaching authority is all about. I think it's important to consider where he is to establish that. Um, the, the authority, I think, is important, but it's made more important by their astoundedness of it. Um, and I don't think that they're so astounded that Jesus was smart because it doesn't seem like they knew him well at this point. I think they're more astounded that someone could be speaking a message that resounded with them that landed that caused a reaction but it didn't come from jerusalem it mm. was a homegrown message by a homegrown dude i mean you know i guess you could take matthew and say well he wasn't really homegrown because he was grown in egypt or whatever but here he's one of us now that can go both ways as you'll see elsewhere well he'll be teaching and run out or uh They'll say, well, isn't that Jesus from Nazareth? He's not that important. But I think there is something to the fact that this is not what they're used to being talked down to from Jerusalem. Instead, this is a person who does, they're not expecting to have all these answers and be able to throw out a demon and all this other stuff. And yet here he is doing it and he's one of us. I think that kind of, bolsters this argument that maybe we need to get out of our ivory towers or our church bell towers and go and see how people are living and go and experience life with them which i think is what he's doing and what paul does by the way when he enters synagogues is living among the people and offering a vision of the world that includes them as opposed to dictating to them how things should be and just assuming that you're right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. This, this to me teaches me something uh, which I should have known, but uh, teaches me something about God because I, I think it's easy for us. We talk about God so much that we kind of forget that this God Yahweh is very different from other gods that were worshiped in the time of, uh, well, I would say in the time of, of 
of Israel during the the exile, during the um, during the captivity in Egypt, there were other gods to choose from. This god was different, though, and and demonstrated how God was different by who he listened to, who he spent time with, mm-hmm. right? And so this shouldn't come as a surprise to me, but I was take I was taken aback, right? That this is that this God who is making God's self known in Jesus of Nazareth is coming to this rural place, Nazareth in Galilee. He's going into the synagogues and he's teaching the people and engaging with somebody who has this evil spirit. He is delivering that person from it. And that just reminds me that this is a God who listens to poor people, listens mm-hmm. to people who have nothing. I mean, other gods uh, that were that were in the, you know, among those that could be worshipped back when the, the, the scriptures of the Hebrew Bible were formed, the scriptures of the Old Testament were formed. These were gods that listened to you if you had enough bulls to sacrifice or if yeah. you were in a position of power, or if you were a king, maybe, right? But most of the time, they just had their own issues, and they wanted uh, the humans to sort of help them out with whatever they were dealing with. Instead, this God, Yahweh, is one who listens to people who are suffering, who goes to places where people are struggling, and even if they don't have anything to give, even if they only have needs or wants, even if they're, if they're all alone, he listens. And that's true in the Old Testament. And we see it again here in the person of Jesus going to places where people don't have anything to give. And listening and helping and healing and delivering. I'm just really fascinated by that and I guess grateful And so it's kind of left me speechless, but that's where, that's where Jesus shows up. That's where God chooses to show up in our world. And so I think for those of us, here's where I'm going. Those of us who are trying to follow Jesus, who believe that we are living as part of God's life today, who believe that Christ is alive and continues to reign and to live and to move and to heal. Where do we go to find him? Where do we go to follow him? I think the answer is that we need to be going out and hearing the real story, not taking our indications of how everything's going from the market, or even, uh, hate to say it, even from the pulpit. Sometimes the the real voice of God is going to come to us when we're out amongst people who are suffering. And so I guess take this invitation from one of the pastors, of this community, that uh, that my words may not be uh, the the full and complete source of truth, that we need to listen to the stories of the people of our neighbors, of the people who are suffering around us in order to find God. I think that's a very important point. And I jokingly said, how dare you, but I'll edit it out because we were talking at the same time. But once you get, any preachers that happen to listen to this, please hear me. Once you get to the point that you think 
that your word is the be all end all and that what you say from the pulpit is what really matters, you're lost and you're disconnected and you have failed to be effective as a communicator and as a, I hate to throw the word around, but as a pastor, because it's, it's what you say into the context into which you're speaking. And if you don't know that context, you've completely missed the mark. Something I want to bring up is that we've kind of, I mean, Peter did talk about it a little bit, but most of the time when you read these verses, you go right to the, the exorcism. And we haven't talked about it much. But getting to that, you'll see in verse 24, uh, what, ha what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And my question is, what in our society needs to be destroyed for us to have a better understanding of who God is? And that is a tough question that we have not talked about before. But as we're reading this and discussing this, I have two points. Number one is that you will never find out if you keep yourself insulated from what's going on in society. Because if you're not a part of that society and you're not living in it and you're not talking to the people, I know it's hard to do in a pandemic, but if you're not communicating in whatever way to the people who are living it and learning their fears and learning their struggles and seeing how quote unquote, the other half lives, you're never going to know that answer. But the second thing is, how do we, even once we find these things, how do we quote unquote, destroy them? How do we cast them out from those they're affecting? I don't tend to demythologize too much because I think that the demons and all this other stuff are in there for a reason. I, I'm, I'm not a literalist either, um, but I try to stop myself. I have a tendency to try to demythologize and I try to stop myself. What do you mean by that? Uh, explaining away mm. things that we don't understand. Um, you know, I mean, you get a, a demon possession that symptoms looking a lot, awful lot like epilepsy, then you're probably going to say, well, they didn't know what epilepsy was. And that's, that's just how they explain it. Things like that. I tend to do that anyway, but I try to stop myself because mm -hmm. the author chose to write man possessed by a demon for a reason. And I should at least wrestle with that before I go to explain it away. Anyway, if we look at this and we do demythologize it a little bit, you can find certain ills in our society that we can substitute without being sacrilegious and heretical for this demon. There's something that affects people in our Galilees that needs to be removed. And it's not always the same thing. Mm -hmm. So my first point was that we need to get out there and find out what it is. What's the demon that needs to be exercised? Mm -hmm. The second question is, how do we go about doing that? Mm. Well, I mean, this is, so this is interesting to me. Of course, that when we read carefully, verse 23 tells us that it was the evil spirit that screamed. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And even though it says 
it was the evil spirit that screamed, that voice came out of this person, right? Mm -hmm. And it makes me wonder whether the evil spirit that is possessing this person is the spirit which has told this person that God has no concern for him. Mm -hmm. That that God would, would have nothing to do with this poor person in some tucked away synagogue in Nazareth of Galilee, because God spends all of God's time in the temple in Jerusalem and only speaks with those who are at the top of that religious and political hierarchy, right? That's the demon that Jesus is casting out. Jesus is casting that demon out so that this person can live a full life knowing that he is worthy that she is worthy, that you are worthy of being seen and heard and loved by God. Even mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, God's son, is willing to come and spend time and hear you out and see you for who you are and deliver you out of that false belief that God doesn't have anything to do with you, that God doesn't care what's going on in your life. I think that's the I'm, evil spirit. I'm glad you brought it up because there, there's a way in which we who are in hopefully aren't isolated but can be in churches often instill that demon quote unquote into people mm-hmm. and i'm gonna tell a story about my dad so my dad had these medical issues and he was sharing them with someone this is before he retired he was sharing them with a veterinarian that he was talking to uh, as part of his job and he the veterinarian said, so do you want me to pray for you? And he said, no. And he's like, what do you mean? No. He's like, don't eat it. My son has a direct link to God and because he's a minister. And so he's got it covered. The guy was just like, fine, whatever. But, and I've, I've, I've shared this story before, but I don't think I have at this church. Um, meaning not the church of podcasting, but the church in which I'm currently sitting. But, the, the implication that we far too often, I try not to, but we far too often incubate this, mm. is that we're the elite. We have this directly to God. And, and he was so wrong, and I told him this, in that I don't have any special access to God that everyone can't have mm-hmm. because I'm just a human being. And God cares for you just as much as God cares for me. But Mm. far too often people in our, I don't want to say status, but our, our, let's just say our job Mm -hmm. put out this kind of idea Mm -hmm. or at least um, implication that we have special access to God that you don't enjoy. Mm. And when people hear that, it's not a great leap to think, well, then God just must not care for me as much as God cares for them. Mm. And if you take your ancient example of the synagogue, not the synagogue, but the, the Sadducees, the priests, the, the higher class dictating what God must want and dictating how people should live from on high as if they're the only ones that can access God causing people in these rural areas, causing people in the synagogues, causing people wherever 
to think that God must not care as much about them. Mm. We've done the same thing mm-hmm. if we're not careful. And I don't think we do it on purpose. I think we find out certain people just already think that and we kind of feed that by saying, yes, yes, I am special. And that's dangerous. It's toxic and it needs to go. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have you ever heard anybody say, oh, I don't ask God for much. I mean, I think God's got much bigger problems to deal with. I know one guy that says that is talking to you right now. <laughs> and I am very careful what I ask God about because like, you know, go ahead. Well, it's so common, you know, and we, that's, we've internalized that. And, but we have to see that we are, that we are worth God's time. And I think that's what this verse tells us here. And I believe that that's the message that we are called to speak into the lives of people who, who may have, for whatever reason, decided or been taught that, they're not worth God's time. One of the things that comes with that idea is fear. And mm-hmm. so I want to guide here to read the last verse of Mark because I have to go and take care of the next thing on my list to do today. Well, and I want you to pay close attention to this verse. Yeah. So this, like we said, Mark is up to something and we may not be able to figure it out in this very podcast here, but we invite you dear listener, to take a close look. There's an invitation, I think, built into this. It's how will we act compared with these disciples? Because we who are reading this, we're disciples too. And these choices are set before us. So I'll pick up where I left off and just continue to finish out the final verse of the Gospel of Mark. This young man in a white robe seated at the right side said to them, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has been raised. He isn't here. Look, here's the place where they laid him. Go tell his disciples, especially Peter, that he is going ahead of you into Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. Overcome with terror and dread, they fled from the tomb. And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. So the question is before us. As followers of this Jesus, who begins and begins again his ministry in Nazareth of Galilee, will we speak up or will we be afraid to say anything? The temptation to let fear paralyze us is a big one, but I encourage you to, instead of letting fear paralyze you, embrace the mystery and see it as a chance to learn more, to get to know people better, to see God through their eyes, and to get out of your various ivory towers and come to know the Jesus of Galilee, not the Jesus of Jerusalem. Well, thanks, everyone. This is Pastor Potluck. My name is Peter Constantian. And I'm Court Green. And we will talk to you later. Peace.